Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today we're talking about wellness, and I'm excited to introduce our guest, Erica Stein, fellow Buddhist and fellow podcaster, who co-hosts the show Courageous Wellness, which is all about different wellness practices. I've been wanting to talk to someone about the relationship between wellness and Buddhism, and our conversation covers everything from the powerful experiences that led to Erica beginning her own practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, to what wellness really means from a Buddhist perspective. Here's Erica. So my name is Erica Stein and I am born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I'm still here and I'm 33 years old and I own and co-founded and produce a podcast called Courageous Wellness. And we also have an integrative nutrition health coaching component of that. And I specialize in gut health. So that's what I do. Amazing. Thank you. So we are going to talk about wellness today, um, but I'm going to save that for a little bit just so we can understand you and your journey with Buddhism a little bit first. Um, so why don't we just start at the very beginning? I always like to ask people this because there might be people listening who are new to Buddhism. There might be people who've practiced for a while, but it's always fun to hear why people started. So how did you first encounter Esther Nichiren Buddhism? And then what kind of made you interested in, in trying chanting? Yeah. So I was actually born into a family that practices Nichiren Buddhism with the SGI. So I grew up in a Buddhist home. And my parents really struggled from the time I was young and watching them really use their Buddhist practice to transform really challenging sufferings. I saw that Buddhism worked and I saw the power of the SGI community and I knew it was something that I wanted to absolutely be involved in and practice for myself. So I've always chanted and I'm really grateful for my parents' struggles for showing me the power of this practice. Mm, yeah, yeah, completely hear you and also relate very much because <laughs> I had a similar uh, similar beginning where my, my parents are the reason I, I started. Um, but do you remember uh, kind of like when you yourself first started chanting? If you're comfortable sharing um, specifically, what is it that you kind of witnessed your parents go through? And I guess you went through because it yeah. is a family experience. Um, that was that that kind of turning point where you were like, OK, Buddhism works. Yeah. So I like I said, I'm 33 years old and I would say my parents struggles really started in 1993. So I must have been like four or five years old when the suffering began. I'm sure that's why, like I said, I can't remember a time I didn't chant because it kind of just started right away. And it started in about 1993, but basically I was born. So as I mentioned, I was born in Los Angeles. I was born in um, very affluent communities between Beverly Hills and Malibu, California. And my father was the president of this really successful multimillion dollar company. And we, again, like lived this very I was very young, so I don't remember all of it, but this very exciting, glamorous lifestyle with famous celebrities and, you know, just all the things you can imagine that goes along with that lifestyle. And then, like I said, things started to change when I was about four in 1993, and that's around the time my brother was born. But it really all came to a head probably when I was around eight or nine years old. And I think that's why I have such vivid memories of this time. And so basically, my father got involved in some pretty bad business deals. And he was arrested on charges of securities fraud. And during that time, we lost everything. So everything was gone, right? So the the Beverly Hills homes, the Malibu homes, um, the famous celebrity friends, the school I was in, like everything transformed pretty quickly. And everyone pretty much abandoned us because they, they, they did. I think that's like human nature. You know, it was like everyone was there, family, friends, 
everyone was there when things were good. And then when all of this stuff happened, when my father had been arrested, everyone abandoned us except for our Buddhist community. And this Buddhist community that, you know, I was again, a child, right? So I'm like about eight at this point when things were getting really, um, intense because my father did end up going to jail when I was 11 years old. So it was like this eight to 11 time was really crucial. And the Buddhist community completely surrounded, uplifted and supported my family again, not with, um, money or things, but with this like spiritual support of no matter what you can transform this karma and your family is going to be protected and they're going to be happy because of And so I saw my parents, you know, and I think my dad at one point was looking at like 20 plus years in prison. It was this crazy number, um, because he was the president of this company. So when all of this went down, it all landed on him. And there's a lot of nuance to everything that they went through. And, you know, at the time, my my father never had malicious intent. As I mentioned, he got very entangled in in bad business deals and, and in this, you know, kind of larger than life experience. But my dad never had malicious intent. And so even though everyone had abandoned us and our family, all I remember is my parents chanting. <laughs> And all of these Buddhists from the Buddhist community coming to our house. And I, I always felt so safe and supported during that time. And I'm like, where, where it kind of went was ultimately my father wound up being sentenced only two years in a minimum security prison, Mm -hmm. which was such actual proof because again, he never had any malicious intent. And during that time though, when my father was in jail, so that happened between sixth and eighth grade. So it was from when I was 11 to 13, like I said, we, we still lost everything. Right. So it was like this big victory of my father's only been sentenced to two years in a minimum security prison. And you know, what a benefit that is. But then what comes after that is my mom is now working two jobs. Um, I went to a brand new school. We had no money. Like I said, like our, in, we had no money, no family, nothing. And every dollar my mom made went to our rent, <laughs> like keeping a roof over our head, gas in the car to get us to work in school. And anything left over would then go, of course, to food. And so what that really meant was a lot of dollar menu McDonald's because you can feed your family for $5, which is pretty incredible. And I was also on free lunch program at school, um, which kept me and my brother fed, you know, for lunch. And I think sometimes for breakfast, they also have free breakfast program. And so that became our life. But again, I really was able to see my parents' utilize this practice. We would call my dad every night from uh, prison and we would chant together three times on the phone. And Mm -hmm. my mother, you know, she worked so hard. She would wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and she would chant Daimoku or Namyo Horenge Kyo. That's the chant um, before taking us to school and every night before bed. And she, and we would all chant together. And she promised, like my mom had such conviction and such faith. She promised us. She said that we would be able to overcome every single problem. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, my dad came out of prison when I was 13, when I was finishing up eighth grade and together with my mom, they started a very successful internet advertising company. He just, my dad was like, you gotta get, it was probably 2002. And he was like, we're going to get into the internet. And, um, (laughs) he started a very successful internet advertising company. And in 2004, 2005, my parents bought a home for us. So we went from literally having food banks, bring us food and surviving off of dollar menu McDonald's in, you know, the year 2000. 2001 to 2004, 2005, my parents bought us a home and everything did transform. That promise my mom made to us really came true. And so again, I think because it started when I was four and kind of wrapped up when I was about 15, I was like, Buddhism works. right? So that's why I've always practiced. Sorry. I think, I don't know if any of that flowed or made sense, but that's kind of That's my childhood in a nutshell, in a long story medium. (laughs) No, thank you so much for, for sharing. It all totally makes sense. And actually I, um, 
Yeah, I, I, it kind of sets up the next question and the topic that I wanted to get into today because, like, I there's so much to unpack in that experience, but, but I'm not going to go there today <laughs> because <laughs> I, I'm actually so curious. You know, um, just thinking from the perspective of of anyone listening who has uh, experienced whatever version of of kind of challenges that were a little bit outside their control, maybe because they were young or because it was not, you know, directly of their own um, causes, that kind of a thing. Sometimes like we get through a really tough situation, but the internalized effects of whatever it is that we've gone through take a much longer time to unpack. And absolutely, we're living in a society that is sort of like um, coming into a lot more awareness and sensitivity of how uh, those that kind of relationship one has with themselves is the root of of health, of wellness, of mental health and wellness, mm-hmm. physical, emotional, all of those things. So because that's kind of what I want to get into today, I wonder if you're comfortable um, maybe helping us segue, you know, and share. I know it might be a little bit vulnerable, but kind of like what your own journey was because I'm sure all of that had an impact you know as you've alluded to on your sense of self and so many other things um so let's start there you know before we talk about wellness generally what's kind of your what was your journey with it well it's so interesting because even going back like knowing what I experienced in my childhood I feel like it makes so much sense that I work in wellness today but I never would have thought that that's where the journey would have taken me. And as you mentioned, I, I didn't see the strings that I see so clearly now, but in Buddhism, right. There's this concept of karma, right? So we all have karma and it was, there's good karma. There's bad karma. I think there's neutral karma. I think you guys did a great episode on karma. So, you know, everyone <laughs> can go back and listen to that, um, to understand karma deep more, a little more deeper, but we all have karma. And so obviously it was my karma to be born into the family that I was born into and have the experiences I had. And as you mentioned, there was stuff that really stayed with me through that, where even though I was able to see and know chanting works, like you can chant and transform anything and transform it quickly. Right. Like I saw that from me. I was like, you can transform anything. You can transform it quickly. Um, I didn't realize, or I didn't have this awareness of I guess some of the stuff that I was also carrying through that. And a lot of that ended up manifesting in self-worth issues, like self-love and self-worth issues. So I guess my entry point into wellness really started as a self-love journey. And so to back up a little bit, you know, as I mentioned, we survived for many years, I'd say probably three or four years on dollar menu McDonald's and food became very emotional um, as well for me. So it was like, I I definitely self-soothed with food and, um, would eat emotionally as a way to take care of myself. I don't think I would have called it that or had that awareness, but again, looking back, I'm like, oh, I'm, I've definitely was and am an emotional eater. And so I say all of that because that also led to me carrying extra weight. So I had always carried a bit of extra weight. And then I would say it kind of came to a head post-college when I started working my first few jobs and I was working in the entertainment industry. And I was also 22 years old. And this is like a decade ago. And, you know, I was dating for the first time and I was working and things just weren't going well at all. Right. Like my dates weren't panning out. The jobs I was doing, they just weren't panning out. Like nothing felt like it was working. And I started to blame my body and my weight for the reason things weren't happening for me. Like that guy would have called me back if I was thinner and prettier, or I would have gotten that job or been ahead in my career if I looked different. Right. Um, Hmm. That's how I felt. And that's how I operated for a bit. And it was one day um, in, I think it was the end of 2011, I went on a really bad date and, um, it wasn't a bad date. It was a bad date because he didn't call me back. And I was so <laughs> upset about it. <laughs> and, um, I, I just remember my women's division leader. So in the SGI, we have, you know, a lot of volunteer support and this woman had been supporting me and, um, she called me on the phone 
and she was just calling to catch up and I fully unloaded on her. I was just like, (laughs) I don't know why I did. We weren't even that close, but I just, I let it all go. And I was like, if I was thinner, prettier, better, he would have called me back and I would be ahead in my career and my life would just be different. And this woman had so much compassion for my life because she stopped me right then and there. She was just like, Erica, you don't value your life at all. And um, it was really hard to hear that. But um, she said it again. She said, Erica, you don't value your life at all. She was like, you are a Buddha. You're a treasure. And she goes, you need to see yourself as the Buddha, right? Like you're this Buddha. And I didn't understand what any of that meant, truthfully. Um, But then she said something that really floored me, even though I also didn't understand what it meant. But she said to me, she goes, Erica, you need to chant to see yourself the way Daisaku Ikeda would see you. And it hit me so hard, even though, like I said, none of this really made sense to me. Right. So I believed the chanting worked. I saw that chanting worked. I knew, and I had right between the age of 14 and 22, I'd had many experiences with seeing chanting work in my own life, right. Through college, through high school, all of that. But I had never really studied Buddhism before. Like I, I, you know, I, I didn't really like get into the study component of it. So I didn't really understand anything she was saying, but it hit me pretty deeply. And I went home and, and she encouraged me to study. And so I went home and I pulled out this book called discussions on youth and it was this transformative moment in my life where I just started reading it. And anybody who's read this book, it's by Daisaku Ikeda. And I don't even think he like encourages us to like chant in it. He's basically just like praising our lives. Like I'm sure there's chanting in it, but it's like every other word is you're a treasure. You're precious. You have a mission. You're a gem. Like it was literally just these words that kept coming out at me. Like your life has so much value. You're a treasure. You're precious. Mm-hmm. Um, And then it hit me. I was like, that's what she meant when she said to see myself the way Daisaku Ikeda would see me. And so I went home and um, I read that book. And then I wrote after I started reading just like the first few pages, right? Like I eventually Mm -hmm. read even deeper into it. But um, I wrote on a hot pink sticky note. I wrote, Erica, you are a treasure. Your life is precious (laughs) and you're a gem and you're a Buddha, right? Like all those things she said to me, all the things I saw Kato was saying to me in that book. And I put the hot pink sticky note on my altar where I chanted. And I just chanted that way every single day. Like I stopped chanting about anything else. I stopped chanting about anything else. I just chanted to love and treasure my life. And from that space, everything changed. My whole world changed. And again, similar to my parents' experience, it didn't take very long. I think in just a matter of months, really, but that from like dedicated chanting mm-hmm. and um, I became much more involved in our Buddhist community. I started really supporting um, other young women and activities and just chanting to treasure my life everything unfolded in a matter of months. And in my largest body, my largest weight as I was, I got um, dream jobs working on television shows at TV studios. I was producing national commercials and I met um, the man in my largest body who is now my husband. We've been together for 10 years and married for seven. And he's like the best, good, good, like good man. And, um, I didn't have to change anything about myself, right. Physically Mm. (laughs) to find that person, right. In my largest body, my career took off. I met the man of my dreams and yeah, everything unfolded. And so that's kind of my self love journey. And what happened from there is I, naturally, I wasn't trying to lose weight. I just started moving my body and exercising, I think three days a week. Um, cause I found a workout class that I loved and I found so much joy when I did it. So it didn't feel like I just did it cause I loved it. And, um, I didn't change the way I ate. Like I didn't change anything consciously other than chanting to treasure and love myself. 
And I ended up losing 50 pounds about a year later. And so, yeah, I think from this standpoint of just treasuring and loving myself, my whole life changed in my largest body. Wow. Oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing all of that. What, what I love about it is, um, it's like really the inside out transformation, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. which, uh, might, might sound cliche, but also is like not at all because no. it's one of the hardest things to do. It feels like today there are so many tools being offered to people to fix the outside mm-hmm. and well, not today. I mean, for, for generations existed. at this mm-hmm. point, um, but there's very few that kind of ask you to start with like the core of how you feel about yourself. Yeah. Um, even physical health sometimes can come second. You know what I mean? Like it, if you if you're coming from a place of I want to treasure my life because mm-hmm. I am a Buddha. So I love all of that. Um, I, uh, I do have one follow up question, which yeah. is um, I'm just thinking from the perspective of someone who's new, you know, we all have different kind of experiences with our health and with our self-esteem and with how we feel about our bodies or in many cases, even our mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes you do have to make really hard choices and sometimes you have to put in a lot of work or do things that are really, really hard, you know? So mm-hmm. I I don't want to make it sound too easy. So I'm curious, and I know you've spoken to like so, so many people about <laughs> all kinds of journeys, but you know, like um, B- Buddhism isn't, isn't magic like it the starting point is valuing your own life and like sitting in front of the gohonzon and chanting nam yoho renge kyo but sometimes that helps us manifest the wisdom to do the hard thing or you know what i mean so i'm just curious like um yeah what your reaction to that is and if you had any moments like that or if you've seen uh yeah just curious what your reaction is yeah no of course (laughs) yes and it's so interesting because yeah i mean yes. I'm like, how, how to phrase this? There was, there's a lot of, and was a lot of self-worth and self-love karma that I needed to deal with and to unpack. And the starting point for that, for me was chanting to treasure my life. And after I ended up losing the weight, what's so interesting, what came next was a lot of, um, like body dysmorphia. And, um, I ended up having a lot of digestive issues with, which then continued. Right. Um, which I think is my mission in wellness and in the wellness space. Right. It was like, all of this was almost an expedient means, which in Buddhism, it's like things happen to kind of guide us towards what our mission is, right. Good things, bad things. A lot of things can be expedient means, but they're guiding us towards something greater. And so after I lost the weight and I was dealing with all this body dysmorphia, and all this digestive issues. Um, I also didn't, it's so funny. I'm talking about it with you here now. And it's so funny that I have a podcast where I talk about this stuff all the time because I actually, I didn't want to talk about it when it happened. I was like, I had to really process and unpack kind of what had just happened. And it was through learning more about nutrition. I started therapy for the first time in my life. Um, all of this, I think really helped me like polish that mirror of my life because I think what happens a lot of times, right. Is people in general, right. Especially women who have grown up with diet culture in the United States. It's like, there's this such an emphasis, right. On like, if I was different then I would be happy, right. Be it Mm -hmm. my body, be it my clothes, be it my job, whatever it is. It's like, if I was different, then I would be happy. And that's just not true at all, but we have to really do the work and unpack it. So it's not just lip service. Like, I feel like a lot of stuff out there can become like lip service. We're like, Oh, all you need to do is love yourself or all you need to do is buy this product. And then you're going to feel super great. It's like, no, we have to really do this work of transforming the root cause to be able to, I think, truly love and treasure ourselves. And so I know it can sound like magic sometimes. And a lot of this, like, like a lot of, I feel like experiences sometimes do sound like magic, but I think the difference between our Buddhist practice and a lot of, um, other things out there. And, you know, my podcast, we, we do mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health. So I interview, we've interviewed hundreds of people with all different types of practices and all different types of, um, 
modalities that they do. And so I think what's so different about our practice is it actually really forces you to like, look at yourself and really like face those things about yourself that, um, that don't feel so good. And simultaneously at this time, I also, there was this activity called Biokran, which in our Buddhist practice, it's like this behind the scenes activity you can do, um, in in the young women's division and you basically support the centers and you greet people. And that's like a very basic explanation of what Biakran is. It's much deeper than that. But, you know, when I started doing Biakran, that was the first time I realized how uncomfortable I was in my body, right? Like it forced me. So I'm chanting to treasure myself. I'm chanting to love myself. And then I was doing, as I said, I got really Involved in our Buddhist community. And I started doing things that forced me to look at myself in a way that I don't think I had ever looked at myself. And all of this internal stuff started coming up. So yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but it was a lot of really facing and looking at myself constantly and polishing that mirror through chanting and through other things. But, um, mm. but it's like, if you don't change the karma, then nothing really changes for good. And I think that's why we all know people or who have been those people where it's like you can lose um, five pounds and you gain 10 back or you get out of one relationship and it's the same relationship with a different person and or you leave one job and you get another job with the same issues, right? So it's, it's really this deep process of getting to the root cause of like, why didn't I treasure myself? And I think having that experience where everything transformed again in my largest body was, was one big peel off the onion layer. Mm. So I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I think what you're touching on, um, that honestly, I wasn't even thinking about when we began this conversation, (laughs) but now it's like glaringly obvious to me Mm -hmm. is, um, you know how you said like when you were younger and your mom was like, we're going to, we can get through anything with, you know, chanting Buddhist study in this community. It's like the, the community piece of it, I feel like is the X factor. Obviously mm-hmm. chanting is the, the kind of most important practice. Cause that is you yeah. facing yourself, but um, especially when it comes to uh, self-esteem, health, wellness, body image, all of those things, like often people can feel like, I need to go away and be by myself and get myself together and Mm -hmm. fill up my cup. And then I'll re-engage with the world as this new and improved person who finally feels confident. But like Byakarin, for example, and many like Buddhist community activities, like especially because it's such a diverse community and we're all volunteers, you just you show up and maybe like this, this stuff that you feel about yourself, um, you know, needs to be addressed in concert with other people, as opposed to like, when I'm perfect, I'll come back and have a social circle again. Do you know what I mean? Completely. And I think even just the community element of, I don't, none of my friends would have said what that woman said to me on the phone that day, right? Like all my friends would have just been like, you're fine. You're beautiful. Right? Like, it's like, Hmm. who cares about that guy? Or that guy's like, you don't want him anyway, or that job's not right. And that's what we need our friends for to like, be there for us and build us up. But in our Buddhist community, I feel like it's, you know, again, that woman had such compassion for my life in that moment to say that to me, to be like, wow, Erica, you don't value your life. And, um, and I, I respected her enough just from seeing her in our Buddhist community to listen, right. To be like, she had no agenda there. She wasn't trying to hurt my feelings. She was trying to help me. And I think again, back to my childhood, like seeing the way the community rallied around my parents, not in like any other way than just like empowering them to believe themselves. I've always just really, um, I'm so grateful for that because I think it's always made me really receptive to information from our organization because Mm. it's just, um, it is a really important component as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so just to recap for a second, you know, it's like, okay, starting point has to be valuing yourself. Like that is crystal, crystal clear. And I <laughs> feel like I, I hear it through your own example and maybe people who are listening um, are thinking quietly about that relationship with themselves, which, uh, you know, you can continue to do in front of the Gohonzon <laughs> as you chant. Um, but then, you know, Buddhism is also about action, practically mm-hmm. speaking. 
And sometimes, you know, for those who are new, Buddhability or, you know, Buddha nature or your kind of inner enlightenment, we define as your own compassion, your own courage, your own wisdom, and you utilize those kinds of things to then take action to, to advance your life. Um, but when it comes to self-care specifically, I feel like it can be extremely difficult to know what you need and to know how to take care of yourself, either because you just are not educated and you don't know, like no one teaches us this stuff in school, mm -hmm. um, no. or you don't have the resources, for example, based on kind of where you grew up or what, what your financial resources are because things can be expensive and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you think, um, both for yourself and then maybe just more generally, like how did your Buddhist practice guide your decisions on what self-care should look like for you and like what you chose to do to then continue to take care of yourself such that it is now even a career path. <laughs> I know it's so again I never would have thought this but you know um the name of my company right is courageous wellness and I think this this work all of this takes a tremendous amount of courage right you know so this concept of courage I feel like is really um important. And I don't even think, right. It's like, you're not aware of the strings. Like I can look back and see all of these strings that led me to, to where I am now. So, and another thing in our Buddhist practice that I think was great growing up in is it's like, you said already, Jihi, you don't have to be perfect. It's not about going away and hiding. And then like, when I'm better, I'm going to come and spread my light. It's like, we spread our light while we're going through it. Like we share, we show up, while we're in the middle of the struggle. And I think that's really important because if we wait until we're these like perfect Buddhas who are enlightened and doing all the self-care and are totally well, like th that doesn't exist and our communities aren't going to grow with us. So I'm, I'm really into self-care for ourselves and for others at the same time. So this concept of community wellness, I feel like mm -hmm. is really important. Yeah, completely. I love that. And I also relate to that, especially um, for anyone who might be listening also and has dealt with um, any kind of long term or chronic illness mm -hmm. where there isn't a day that everything's going to feel completely amazing and you're free of whatever it is that you're struggling with. Um, which I have experienced, like those are the days it could be the hardest to want to show up like yeah. to a Buddhist meeting or to meet a friend for lunch or to see your family or to kind of come out of your shell and having um, the community sort of as a resource where you're not only going to receive, but you're going to give mm -hmm. because other people are dealing with whatever there are other circumstances like you. It's like a, a type of a I don't know what the word is like you feel invigorated in a way that nothing else can make you it's feel invigorated. the best form of self-care is helping others and I think that's such like an it's such an interesting point too but I love that about our Buddhist community because it's like let's say you were having a flare-up or a moment in your chronic illness it's like you show up as you are right you never have to change anything about yourself in this practice and I just think that's that's pretty cool too yeah yeah absolutely um so so I want to ask just uh, pointedly about your actual decision to then make this your career path. So like yeah. I see Erica's journey and you've alluded to this. Of course, I know one of the major ways that you sort of um, contribute or give back is through the Buddhist community and being engaged and supporting other people there. But in terms of courageous wellness and deciding to start a, a podcast and a business. Yeah. Tell me more about it. And how did you sort of decide to make that the, the next step? You know, it's so funny because it, it's, yeah, I'm like, it's so funny to me again. I mean, I, I truly believe that courageous wellness and this, this is my mission and this is what I was always meant to do. And it took all of these twists and turns to get there. But the idea of starting a business was not, um, something I even considered until after the podcast started. So to back up a little bit, it's, um, you know, this concept of courage, right? And again, I think all of these, I'm so grateful for the SGI Buddhist community because I feel like 
I am who I am today because of it. And if I wasn't in this organization, I don't think I'd have anything I have in my life. I actually know that for a fact. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that, again, as I got curious about doing this work and I had my self-love journey, I had my weight loss journey, I'm starting therapy, I'm doing all of this stuff and I'm just following kind of like this inner, again, like that inner voice, that intuition, that Buddha that exists in me. And it kind of, it's like a, I feel like it's such a millennial story where it's like tale as old as millennial time. (laughs) I was on Instagram and I saw a friend, she was a, an actress and a musical theater actress. And so we had similar friends, similar interests. We were similar age and we liked each other, but that was kind of where it started and where it ended. And Um, she had had a huge benefit that took her to Japan to perform as a musical theater actress in a few shows over in Japan. She had been gone for like a year and a half and she was posting about making blood sugar balancing smoothies. And she was posting about all this wellness stuff. And I was like, I don't have any friends who are interested in wellness. And I want a friend who's interested (laughs) in wellness. And to be honest, I'm actually like a very introverted person. And it's not really my personality to like reach out that way, but something in me, I don't know if it was rhythm. I chant every day to be in the positive rhythm of the universe, but some sort of rhythm. I just DM'd her. (laughs) We started talking about wellness and nutrition. And when she came back from Japan, um, just a few months later, we met up to hang out and go to a workout class in Los Angeles and we were just chatting and talking and she had had, which we talk about on our podcast as well. She was diagnosed with cancer when she was 29 and she recovered and got through it. And, um, she had met me after my weight loss and self-love journey. So she had no idea about the intricacies of that. And even though I had known she had cancer, um, I didn't know the intricacies of what that was like. Right. So we started like sharing our stories and really talking And all of a sudden we had this idea in that moment, in that first hangout, we were like, we should start a podcast. (laughs) It was really that simple. Right. And I think that's an important thing to note because I feel like a lot of times, especially with social media and culture, it's like everything has to be perfect before it's ready or ever. Like you gotta, like, we just had this idea because we realized like how full we were from sharing our stories with each other and how empowered we always felt when we would hear stories from other people about how they were able to transform their lives. And we really both had this passion about destigmatizing conversations and wellness, right? Because I think the wellness industry has a lot of issues and a lot of problems, (laughs) which is separate, but in terms of, right, it's not accessible. It can be very whitewashed. It can commodify a lot of things that are supposed to be free for all. And so a podcast is also something that, you know, you can listen to for free. You can find it, you can access it. Mm -hmm. And so we just had this idea where we really wanted to tell stories and that's where it started. And that was May of 2018. And by June, we released our first podcast. And a year later, we were a full business and we both went back to school together and became became certified in integrative nutrition. And she now has advanced training in hormone health and I have advanced training in gut health. And so we became, you know, we're the podcast first and foremost, and we love it and we'll probably do it forever as long as we can. Um, but we also have this component to our business now where we coach and we work with individuals and groups and corporations to share nutrition education. And we're so passionate about, again, education, nutrition education as a way to advocate for your own health and wellness, because this it's so important to advocate for your own health and wellness. And only you know what that means, right? Only you know what's best for you. And So that's, that's a big component. And now again, like all these strings, like all these invisible strings along the way we've since, you know, we've spoken at, um, elementary school classrooms in California. We've worked with, um, the Wayfair foundation and covenant house, California, and which is so special to me is, you know, we've now worked annually with the West side food bank in Los Angeles. And, you know, as a kid, right, like it's such a full circle moment for me, because as I said, we were food insecure and we didn't have food. And actually at a certain point, an organization, a group brought us food from food banks so that my mom could have food in our, um, 
home. And I remember as a kid what a moment that was because our cupboards were bare. And after the food bank or the agency that worked with the food bank brought us food, we had so much food in our cupboards. And it was like this really beautiful childhood memory of mine. And so we work, um, we've done fundraisers now every year for the West Side Food Bank in Los Angeles, which um, services 10% of the population on the West Side, which is one of the most affluent parts of Los Angeles. And, um, but they even service over 200,000 people who are food insecure. So mm-hmm. and sorry, it's a little bit about how I led into the career and how it worked, but you know, it was just this idea and this mission and this passion that turned into a company. Mm-hmm. And I see, like I said, the string to my childhood to now. And as I mentioned, expedient means, I feel like every, like my self-love, my self-worth, my struggles with like valuing myself, all of that was expedient means to get here. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for the struggles, which is crazy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I love that. And uh, hearing you say all of this makes me think of, um, uh, you know, in Buddhism, how we say, uh, nothing is ever wasted like yeah, ever, nothing. like every, every experience that you have good, bad, it doesn't matter. There's no inherent, um, yeah, judgment or value of an individual experience. It's, it's what you do with it that really mm-hmm. matters. And chanting is a way to, as you've described, um, so well utilize every experience that you have for the benefit of other people and yourself. So, yeah. Well, thank you. And again, I just not like I just love our Buddhist community so much, but I think <laughs> this stuff is really hard to do on your own. Like I truly don't think I'd be here. Yeah, if I didn't chant, I would not be here. But I do not think I would be here today without the Buddhist community because it's 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 been that's been the string throughout my whole life as well. So, yeah. Mm. Thank yeah. you. Just out of curiosity, if you, because you've interviewed hundreds of people at this point mm-hmm. too, and they, yeah. as you said, work in completely different fields, modalities. Some are personal journeys, some are professional advice, mm-hmm. everything in between. Everything. Um, but if you had to sort of like gut reaction, choose, let's say like the top three things that you have learned about wellness um, mm-hmm. that you feel like resonate with Buddhism based mm-hmm. on kind of your experience with both. Yeah. What comes to mind? No, that's a great question. And we have, we've, we've interviewed over, uh, we've released over 200 episodes. We've released, we've interviewed well over 200 people. And, you know, a couple of things that I think have really come up to me and to Ali as well, because we talk about this is, um, you know, I think every single person who has come on our podcast, not every single one, but I'd say probably like 80 to 90% have a daily practice, some sort of daily practice, the way we like chant, right? Mm -hmm. It could be, um, they go outside and like breathe in fresh air, but there's some sort of like daily commitment to self, I should say Mm -hmm. that I think almost all of our guests have. And, um, another thing that really, I feel like resonates with our Buddhist practice or something that's really stuck with me, I should say, from one of our guests was um, meeting people where they're at and not where we're at, right? Like we can't meet people where we're at. We have to meet people where they're at. And I feel like a lot of wellness on the internet is like, you should do blah, 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 and all of these things. And, you know, and and that's not accessible to everybody. So I think a lot of... Um, a lot of the work has to be like, how can we meet people where they're at to um, help others and not just do what we would do for ourselves, if that makes sense? Like, hmm. not even what we would do for ourselves, but just like, you know, at, at the beginning of my journey, I had no idea what like gut health was or blood sugar balance or, um, gosh, I, I don't even think I, I, could have talked to you about self-love I, that that phrase was so foreign so it's like really meeting people where they're at I think is really important um yeah yeah but the daily practice thing is interesting you know like a lot of I think I think it can be really hard to make a commitment to yourself but making a commitment to yourself is is really important and that looks different for everybody what that is Mm, that's yeah. what comes to mind I love those too that's yeah no no that's that's great and it actually also just it's just so interesting because even you know 
for I mean, I, I read a fair bit about wellness. It's absolutely not my my field. Um, but it, it is so striking to hear so much of what you're saying is about like human relationships and being well in relationships and supporting other people because it's yeah. so easy to think wellness is all about you and yeah. your health by yourself. Complete. No. Oh, and that's the other thing you just reminded me. You know, our concept in Buddhism of poison into medicine. Almost mm-hmm. every single person who has come on my podcast has had like some sort of debilitating struggle that they've transformed into their purpose. And so I think it's almost interesting, right? If we can reframe, and I'm so grateful because again, our Buddhist community has taught me how to do this, but, and it's so hard to do alone, especially when you're suffering, like, especially when you're, and I don't want to like, I have had tremendous suffering in my life, right? Like this is like, I've always been a pretty happy person too. So I can talk about it optimistically, but like all of this, like tremendous suffering, like tremendous tears, tremendous suffering, but to have the awareness of, okay, this is also like part of my mission, right? Like, and Buddhism teaches that, like you would not have been born if you did not have a mission to fulfill. And Mm -hmm. even the most heart-wrenching, horrible things we can transform into our purpose, right? Like pain into purpose. And so it's just interesting that every single person has been able to do that who has come on the show and then transformed it into a book or a company or a career or whatever it is. So, um, yeah. And even in our Buddhist community, even if it's just transforming it into this experience that inspires one person, I think that can give our suffering so much value. Mm, Yeah. hundred percent agree. Um, so I, I want to move to my closing questions and I feel like you have already shared so many, um, but, and you also just touched on one that I would love to ask you to expand on. Mm. So I was going to ask if you have a favorite Buddhist concept or quote, uh, before you share what, I don't know if this is the one you would choose, but you mentioned poison into medicine. And so Mm. for anyone who might be completely new to Buddhism, what do you mean by that? Poison into medicine. Oh my gosh, Jihee, you can help me. But, um, basically it's this concept of, right? Like poison or any like struggle or difficulty that we face can become through our Buddhist practice and our faith, like medicine or a gift or our purpose, right? So like pain into purpose could be maybe layman's terms for it. But I do have a quote that I love from Daisaku Ikeda where I think it sums it up really well. And I read it all the time and I keep it on my phone. And he says, in the realm of the mystic law, no matter what happens, we can in time positively transform all poison into medicine. In fact, there is really no clear cut dividing line between poison and medicine. The same substance can act as either a poison or a medicine, depending on the dosage and the life force of the individual who takes it. Some have even described medicine as poison that saves lives. Similarly, there is no clear difference between what will function as poison or medicine when it comes to victory and defeat in life. For instance, if we triumph in the end, everything we experienced can be seen as medicine. On the other hand, if our lives end in defeat, then everything, even that which seemed to function as medicine along the way, becomes poison. What do we mean by triumphing in the end? It means being victorious in faith, for this is our true victory as a human being, one that leads to our victory throughout the three existences of past, present, and future. So I love that so much, right? If we triumph in the end, then everything was medicine. And so I like to look at my struggles (laughs) that way, Mm -hmm. right? Like if we triumph in the end, then everything was medicine. And it reminds me of you know, one of my favorite Nichiren Daishon and Gosho passages, which is from persecutions befalling the sage. And there's a portion in it where he says like our present tribulations are like moxibustion and moxibustion is this like old, old, like medicine that like was really painful when they gave it to people. So, um, the quote is like our present tribulations are like moxibustion at the time it is painful, but because it has beneficial after effects, the pain is not really pain. And I just like repeat that to myself sometimes. I'm like, when I'm in pain and in the mm-hmm. depths of hell, I'm like, the pain is not really pain because the Buddha is there too, right? The Buddha is there as well. And so, yeah, expedient means everything is just guiding us. So yeah, those are some of my favorite quotes and concepts for sure. Yeah, I love, love that. And that, mm-hmm. yeah, it's such a perfect metaphor for this episode, but also just just generally, because I'll add that like, 
uh, Buddhability or Buddhahood, like the thing that it is that we are tapping into through chanting is what allows the poison to become medicine. It's mm. not a mental trick alone, which, you know what I yeah. mean? It can, it can feel so hard when you're in it to remind yourself of that, except after you've experienced it a few times, yeah. then you're like, oh, no, no, this is what's happening. I got well, it. Because it's so not about, it's so much deeper than just like positive thinking because you actually don't have to, you could be in the depths of hell while you're chanting and things are transforming at the same time. You don't exactly. have to fake anything. So it's beautiful, yeah. Chihi. I so agree. <laughs> Love it. So um, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story and for all of this insight. Um, I will move to our closing question, which is how I always end the show, which is always with a piece of advice. So if you could give one piece of advice to someone who's listening, who might be new to Buddhism and currently struggling with or actually like maybe hasn't even begun their mm -hmm. own wellness journey, what would you say? Yeah, no, it's such a good question. You know, I think, again, this concept of courage is so important and it looks different to every single person. So I think just be courageous with yourself, show up for yourself, trust yourself, you know, better than anything else, right? There's a lot of noise and wellness, but you know what's best for you and always advocate for your own health and wellness and never give up on yourself, you know, never give up. Here are my key takeaways from today's conversation, since I know we covered a lot. From a Buddhist perspective, the starting point for health and wellness, be it physical, mental, spiritual, or community, is treasuring and respecting our own life and those around us. And from that place of deep value, chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to manifest the wisdom and courage to care for ourselves and each other as well as we can, which in many cases may require professional support. On that note, I want to leave you today with these words from Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda, which Erika mentioned as her starting point for wellness and self-care. He writes, In Buddhism, nothing happens by chance. Everything has meaning. Please be convinced that you already possess every treasure. It's vital to recognize that no matter how difficult your situation may be, you are alive now. There is no treasure more precious than life itself. As always, if you're new to chanting and you want to try it out, we have plenty of resources at buddhability.org. And if you'd like to connect with your local Buddhist community, you can email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.